Week 11. Week 11, Dakota. So we're looking at the extent, primarily this week we're looking at the extent of the atonement, but we are also going to finish up just a little bit on the nature of the atonement. Uh, the past several weeks we've looked at the threefold office of Christ, prophet, priest, and king, and how that needs to inform our understanding of the nature of the atonement. Then we looked at historical theology, different views of the atonement over the history of the church. And then we spent a couple of weeks looking at the biblical data, eight different categories uh, that the Bible gives us to, to understand the atonement and, and the one central uh, idea of the atonement that encapsulates all of those, if we're, if we're rightly understanding them, in their biblical theological context, is penal substitution. That is not to say that uh, penal substitutionary atonement is the only thing that's happening in the atonement, but it is the primary heart, nature, uh, foundation of the atonement from which Christ is victorious over Satan and the enemies and, and the cosmic powers, and he is our moral example. Um, <clears throat> and so, uh, all uh, he's re, uh, recapitulation from Irenaeus and the early church. He is, he is the last Adam and has undone Adam's failures. So we looked at uh, the nature of the atonement last couple of weeks, biblical data, landed on penal substitution as the heart, and now under number one, before we turn to, to looking at the extent, we want to look at the debate over the necessity of Christ's death. So under number one, the, the necessity of Christ's death. So, uh, the first one, you, you have <clears throat> particularly like Reformation, post-Reformation. You've got, you've got three views on the necessity of Christ's death. First, you have the Socinians. You remember those guys? The Socinians, modern-day Unitarians. Socinians. Socinius, named after Socinius. That's an A. Oh, yeah, letter A. The Socinians. What did the Socinians say? God can just forgive. Christ's death was not necessary. God can just forgive. Uh, yeah, we do need a boo into the mic. God can just forgive. God could just love or forgive without atonement. Uh, this is, this is, uh, this faction is actually going to lead to the third, the third view that we're going to look at in terms of the necessity of Christ's death. Um, <clears throat> was all of Christ's salvific work, his sacrifice, propitiation, everything that we've talked about, was it really necessary uh, if the elect were to be saved? Uh, could he have saved in different ways? Um, <clears throat> the Socinians would say, nope, God can just forgive. Jesus' death was not necessary, nor would it ever be necessary. Of course, they'd also deny the Trinity and lots of other things. Um, so that's, uh, that's heretical. We want to we wanna run, away, run away from Socinianism. Uh, but under, un, underneath the Socinians, number A, uh, uh, letter, letter B, 
you also have the hypothetical necessity view. The hypothetical necessity view. So this is the hypothetical necessity view is likely the dominant view of the history of the church. Um, Augustine, uh, Thomas Aquinas, uh, some of the early reformers, you're going to see them arguing for what we would call the hypothetical necessity view. Okay, So what does that actually mean? Uh, so they are not denying, they are not denying uh, that salvation comes through the cross of Christ. Okay, so no person who's arguing for hypothetical necessity, no hypothetical advocate is going to argue that salvation comes apart from the cross. Okay, so Sinians would argue that, but hypothetical necessity would say, no, salvation only comes through the cross. Okay, what they, what they are saying is that there were other ways possible to God that he could have chosen besides the cross of Christ. And they're not accenting the mode of death. They, they are saying the Son, Jesus, did not have to die in order for uh, sins to be forgiven had God chosen otherwise. But since he chose that the cross would be the means by which his people would be saved, there's no salvation apart from the cross of Christ. God could have done otherwise if he had chosen otherwise. Now, this is set in con uh, stark contrast to the third, which came as a... Um, as a response to Socinianism, and that is consequent. At, hold on. Uh, consequent, yeah, consequent, absolute necessity. Consequent, absolute necessity of you. Um, so, that, that's going to be the view that I'm going to argue for. It's not an issue of orthodoxy. People can believe this and still be orthodox because they're still saying that salvation comes only through the cross. They're simply saying that God could have chosen otherwise in eternity past. What consequent absolute necessity is going to argue and you really see this in post-Reformation, start to come up with like Francis Turretin, who's like a big Reformation scholastic guy, um, <clears throat> and then others, John Murray, Charles Hodge, these Louis Burkhoff, these guys who come later. They are going to argue that since God has freely chosen to save sinners, Christ had to die. Now, how is that different from the hypothetical necessity view? The hypothetical necessity view argues that God could have brought about salvation 
in a way that was other than the death of his son. But because he chose that as the means by which he was going to save, there is no salvation apart from the cross. Consequent absolute necessity is saying the decision was not whether or not the son had to die or not. The decision was one step prior to that. Would he save his people or not? God could have freely chosen not to save anyone, and he would have been perfectly righteous and just and holy and loving to judge us all for our sin. But since he has chosen to save his people, it demanded the death of his son. Now, that could have come in some other mode other than the cross, but the cross was the instrument by which the son died. The son had to die. Okay, he could have died in a different way, but it required death, the death of the son. So, <clears throat> since God has freely chosen to save sinners, the consequence due to his nature, his holy just nature, is that the incarnation and atonement must occur in order to maintain justice and provide a means of forgiveness. So essentially, Romans 3. In order for God to be just and justifier, when, he's, when he decides to save his people in eternity past within the Godhead, he must demand the death of his son. Does that, does that make sense? This, yeah, go ahead. As a consequence of him deciding to save sinners, it's absolutely necessary for the son to die. He hypothetically could have saved otherwise. But since he chose to save through the cross, the cross is necessary. But it could have been another means of salvation. But he decreed the cross. And so, therefore, it must be the cross. And there's no salvation apart from the cross. This one is not talking about the decree as to whether or not he died or didn't die. This is arguing, no, because of who God is, because of his nature, when he decreed that people would be forgiven and saved, that sealed the son's fate. Because his holy, just character demands his wrath to be executed against sin. So he didn't have to save his people. This is what they're saying. It's hypothetical in the sense that like, he didn't have to save anybody. But he chose to save people. And when he chose to save people, it had to be through the death of his son because he must maintain his just character by penalizing sin, pouring out his wrath on sin. So there are New Testament texts that speak of the necessity of Christ taking upon our humanity and going to the cross. Lots of places in Hebrews. Hebrews 2, Hebrews 7, Hebrews 9. The connection between sin and punishment. Sin is itself personal moral rebellion of an infinite, uh, infinite um, quantity, I guess, 
because it's an against, it's against an infinitely great God, right? So the 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 honor the the value of the one against whom you are sinning, namely God, sin is itself horrific and terrible and demands an eternal, perfect and just death or uh, punishment, and so. The cross of Christ is necessary to both uphold God's love, since he's chosen to save his people. He can't not save them and betray his character, but he can't also not, uh, well, I didn't write that, I erased it. He can't just forgive, like the Socinians are arguing. He can't just forgive. Yes. Yes. I'm sorry, I, d- I didn't understand what you're saying. So in the Old Testament, the way that the sin was covered yeah. through the sacrifice of the Levitical system. Right. Right. So the blood was the was that through the sacrifice of the That particular manifestation of it, yes. So there were sacrifices before the Levitical system, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. You would. You would. No, they're, they're saying that he could have chosen a way to save his people that did not involve death. At all. Death at all. Now, so what they're saying with hypothetical, again, hypothetical necessity is saying God could have chosen to save his people in a manner other than the cross, other than the death of his son, okay? He didn't choose to do it otherwise, and so there is no salvation apart from the cross of Christ, okay? But he could have chosen otherwise. Consequent absolute necessity is saying because God could have chosen to not save people. But when he decided in eternity past, that logical ordering, because, I mean, obviously he's eternal and there's no progression. When he decided to save, it demanded the death of his son in order to maintain his justice and actually provide forgiveness. Where do they get the consequent absolute necessity? It had to be the death. It had to be death. The death of son. Yeah. Uh, Revelation 13 is one example. I mean, Hebrews 2, Hebrews 7, Hebrews 9. We could read those passages that I have here. But Hebrews 13. Uh, and all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was 
slain. 13.8, the lamb who was slain before the foundations of the world. Yes, right. So, okay, say all that again. Say that again. Yes. And so we have to understand what death is. What ultimately, foundationally, what is death? Separation from God. Like a, a state of being under God's wrath. And so what, what elicits God's wrath? Sin. Is there a world in which sin does not elicit God's wrath? Is there a world in which God's wrath is not death? Right, So that's all that consequent absolute necessity is saying. Because of God's character, it would not be just if, the, if there was no wrath upon sin. Because he would be unjust. But the only way that sin could be actually dealt with and us not be ruined is by someone dying in our place. who could also conquer death, right? And so that, that's what this is saying. The, this, this one is saying the decision is, is whether or not death was, the death of the son was the only way that it could happen. They would say, no, he could have done otherwise. The, here, the question is not that. The question is, could he have chosen to not save? Yes, he could have chosen to create us and we would all be ruined but since he did choose to save us it demands the the penalty against sin which is wrath death which demands the death of the son not an issue of orthodoxy so sinianism that's unorthodox that's heretical you can't god just can't sweep stuff under the rug these people are not saying that salvation is apart from the cross, because they're saying God chose that. And since he chose it that way, that's the only way that it can be. Just in eternity past, he could have chosen otherwise. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I would think so, which would then make him not God. Uh, <clears throat> it's, I don't think it's a movement in the right direction, but in the same way that I would not say that an Arminian is, a hereti is heretical and that they are redefining God's character and nature by redefining sovereignty they're trying to affirm scripture yeah right 
Yeah. So, <clears throat> yeah, they're, they're just saying, I mean, I'm sure that somebody like this would be saying, God's so powerful that he could have chosen to forgive and accomplish forgiveness some other way than the death of his son. And consequent absolute necessity is saying God's character binds him. His perfect character binds him. Binds him to what? Perfection. When he decides to save his people, that perfection must be worked out in a particular way so that he's both just and justifier. But again, not, not issue of, of heresy or orthodoxy. Yes, ma'am. The exceptionally attractive woman in the fourth row. I don't know what they would say about the scriptures being different, but it, it would likely have to be. Right, but they're, not, but they're not saying he does it a different way now. They're saying he chose to do it this way, and therefore there's no other way than this way. To, to accomplish it. Yeah, Levitical sacrificial. Death must happen. All this stuff. Because he chose to do it that way. Well, because, I mean, people in the history of the church ask these questions. And they, the, the way that we ask these questions, the way that we answer them, reflects how we view God. And so the consequent absolute necessity is itself a response to Socinianism. Who, the people are saying, God can just forgive. And, and Turretin is saying, no. No, like, they, they, he can't just forgive by sweeping sin under the rug. Like, he can't just ignore sin and somehow separate it from himself, however that could happen. No, like, because of who he is... Sin must be perfectly punished, justly punished, and because in His grace He has decided to save worthless people like us in our sins, because He sees us as valuable image bearers, He had to do it. His character demanded it. All right, so... Um, what's the, what's the next thing? Um, okay, yeah, so, number two. The debate over the extent of the atonement. This, this is the hot debate. Everybody loves arguing about this, for whatever reason. <laughs> yeah, I think Chandler wants to argue about this. <laughs> what, what about this do you, do you not understand? Do you understand it? Now, can you define hypothetical necessity view? I can define both of them. I just don't know that I can defend either one very well. I can define them, but if we were you know, to have two thoughts, defending paper is not going to be helpful. Well, that's a, I mean, you're, have you heard of these no. terms before? Okay. Um, well, you don't have to write a paper for this discipleship class, but if you are in a systematic two class with me in the summer, you will have to. But you don't have to write it on this, though, if you don't want to.
for the ones and ones. For Timothy, I'm not being rude uh, to Chandler. Uh, borderline slanders. Um, all right, so nature of the atonement, people who reject penal substitutionary atonement, I, I, I think that that's first-tier issue. Extent of the atonement, I think that that's the second-tier issue. Like, it's okay. You can, you can have differences of opinion on the extent of the atonement. It's going to have big ramifications in the local church. And so that's why I would say, like, it's a second-tier issue, which means that with our confession and, our, and a, a, a committed Arminian would not be able to sign our confession of faith with a clear conscience. Because the extent of the atonement, God, the understanding of God's sovereignty, human freedom, that in, informs so much of what we do in the local church um, as to make it very difficult for them to be able to live out their faith with a clear conscience as well as, as us. So, uh, the debate over the extent of the atonement. Okay, so there are three different views. Three different views. Chandler, what are they? Write a paper on it. The first view. Atonement uh, under, under letter A. Atonement is what, Chandler? Universal. You know this. You should know this. You are going to write a paper on it. Atonement is universal in divine design, but limited in its accomplishment and efficacy. So the atonement is universal. Jesus died for the world. We'll talk about it. I want you to like what you think the scriptures teach us. <laughs> so Jesus died for the whole world, but not everybody saved. And so his atoning work is limited in its effectiveness or in its accomplishment. <laughs> A visceral reaction from, from that same attractive woman I referenced earlier. Okay, letter B. Letter B. Letter B, okay. Two big camps, and we're going to look at three, three different views. Uh, B, atonement is particular in design, and as such, particular, definite, or limited in extent. So two, two major competing camps. Universal versus particular. Or definite. Uh, I'll finish it. Definite. Okay, under, under universal. Can you name... Any groups that? Okay, all right, yeah, you know what, let's, let's keep moving and then we'll, because we want to make sure that we're not saying that. Um, the question in the debate, the question, you, no, you're not wrong, that's, that's, no, that's not wrong, we need to address some other things before we get to that. The question in the debate is over, letter C, over intent, Okay. Neither, neither camp, neither camp is going to argue that, that Christ's work is 
insufficient to save the entire world. Both camps are going to say Jesus' sacrifice is totally sufficient to save the entire world. The, the, the sufficiency of Christ's atonement is not in question between these two camps. The, the, the issue is, what did God intend? What did God intend with the atonement? So the question in the debate is over intent. For whom did Christ die? For whom did Christ die? Okay, so in the universal camp, this is, this is important that Chandler brought up. That's an important distinction. Okay, when we're talking about universal atonement, we are not talking about universalism. Okay, universalism is everyone is saved. Christ died for all and everyone's saved. No one goes to hell. No one endures God's wrath for sin. Everyone, Hitler, Mao, all the people go to heaven. That is not the universal camp. Okay, they are not arguing for that. So who, who's in this, this uh, universal camp? Like if, if we're thinking about um, different theological groups. Roman Catholics? Well, he, he's thinking. Okay. Armenians? So underneath Armenians, like you'd have Methodists, Wesleyans, Free Will Baptists. The attractive woman in the fourth row said Free Will Baptists, but she didn't say it into the mic. So... Um, The very attractive woman in the fourth row is, is, is my wife, Elise Powell. Yes, all the ones and ones of people will know this, you know. Obviously, have to, if we hit the big time, I'll have to, like, take all these down. <laughs> all right, so uh, Arminians, Methodists, Wesleyans, all those guys. Um, who's, who's even, like, further to the left than Arminians as it relates to God's sovereignty and human freedom? Greg Boyd, John Sanders. Look at you. Look at you. She is like. That doesn't look right. I before E. E before. No, I've, yeah, I'm like looking at the whiteboard. Open theist. Yep. Yeah, Armenians, open theists. Those are probably the two biggest camps of people that we would like interact with. Uh, a lot of people in the Southern Baptist Convention are Armenians, even though uh, we started out historically. We're Reformed, particular Baptists. And over 100 years, 20th century of liberalism, uh, you saw more and more of a creep towards that. And then uh, functionally, a lot of Southern Baptists are functionally open theists. So, that's really sad. Um, all right, particular or definite atonement. What, what camps are there? 
Look at you. Generally the case. Yep. Uh, let's see. Um, let's see. We'll call him Calvinist. Uh, who else? Yep. Yep. So underneath Calvinist, you're, you've got, you know, Presbyterians, which uh, Presbyterians, PCA, PCA, OPC. PCUSA would still say definite atonement, but they would fudge on other things. Uh, and then um, you've got reform folks, most reform folks. Uh, particular Baptists. Okay. So again, the, the we we should not accuse Arminians or, or anyone who ascribes to free will theology that they do not believe that that the atonement of Christ is sufficient to save the whole world. Neither should they accuse advocates of definite atonement or particular atonement that Christ's work is insufficient. That sufficiency is not at debate uh, or up for debate. It is what was, God, what was God's intent? What is God's plan? We don't want to caricature other views, right? Um, so, <clears throat> the Arminian view. The intent or purpose of the atonement was for all men without exception. All men without exception. So, the death of Christ secures for all men a possible salvation. A possible salvation. We're under universal. Yeah, under universal. Universal, not universalism. That's D. Mm-hmm. Universal atonement, not universalism. Oh, well, I feel free, sister, to write in the big blank space underneath the D. Okay, so universal atonement, that's not universalism. Okay, universalism is her- heretical. So, Arminians, the, it, the intent or purpose of the atonement is to uh, provide a salvation uh, or to provide atonement for all men without exception, all people. The death of Christ secures for all men a possible salvation. And then it also secures a measure of grace, common grace, prevenient grace, whereby all people are able to believe by faith. They would call that prevenient grace. Because they have to deal with the fact that like people are dead in their sins. So how can dead people choose life? God gives them prevenient grace that... It's not saving grace, but it awakens them sufficiently to the, to the point where they can grab on to Jesus' promises by faith. And they do that by exercising their 
libertarian free will. So, in Arminianism, okay, with their view of the atonement, faith precedes regeneration in the, in the logical order, the order of salvation. You are not regenerated until after you exercise faith. Whereas for particular definite atonement people, it's regeneration, then faith. And it's all happening simultaneously. So, hypothet- this is a hypothetical salvation. This is a hypothetical salvation. Salva- it's atonement for all men, without exception, is to be acquired by faith. So, it's, it's, a, it's a, a hypothetical atonement that is totally dependent upon the man, or the woman, or the child, to grab hold of it by faith. And God knows who will do that, based upon his foreknowledge of their future free will actions from eternity past. Um, okay, <clears throat> any, any questions about that? Fairly, fairly straightforward view, it's not super complicated. Um, Alright, so there's a middle, middle view here, uh, and that's under what, E for y'all? Did I put it E? Yeah. So this is called the modified Calvinist view. Modified Calvinist view. This, um, uh, so over here you might want to refer to these Calvinists as these guys. These are five-point Calvinists. All five points is tulip. Uh, thank you, though. Uh, so here you have four-point Calvinists. Modified. Yeah, not, it's tuip. Yep, yep. Q-whip, Q-whip, Tulip, yeah, like that, Tulip, and over here it's Tulip. All right, so this one, um, Mark Driscoll probably popularized this one the most. Um, Bruce Ware is an advocate, Modify Calvinism, Greg Allison, Southern. I mean, these are, these are Reformed guys. Um, they affirm uh, freedom of inclination, compatibilism, God's exhaustive sovereignty, and all this kind of stuff. Uh, but they argue that God had multiple intentions in the atonement, not just one. Uh, so, they would argue, Mark Driscoll uh, put it this way, sufficient for all, effective for some, sufficient for all, effective only for the elect. And so this is really about, um, without going into too much detail, this is really about the ordering of God's decrees um, <clears throat> from eternity past. And so they're simply saying that God decreed 
um, for people to be saved uh, after the fall. They're trying to reconcile the, uh, all the passages that say God, like God so loved the world. Jesus died for the world, 1 John 2. Not for, only for the sins of the elect, but for the whole world. Uh, the, they're trying to straddle proof text over here with proof text from over here. Which means that everybody hates them. <laughs> We're not going to get into the ordering of God's decree in this class. So we're not going to do supra-infralapsarianism, sublapsarianism. We're not going to talk about all that. But we will talk about it in Systematic 2 coming this summer for Chandler Earth. Can't wait. Yep. So this, yes, this, this is, this view is, if you want to be technical about it, sublapsarianism. Yes. Yep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, all right. So, um, here, particular definite atonement. This is um, <clears throat> this is one where God has elected. His people from eternity past, before the fall. Um, and uh, he, has the elect, he has his elect. God must bring new life. Faith itself is a gift. It's not acquired by libertarian freedom. God's decree is that the cross uh, is for only his elect. And this is where... It differs from modified Calvinism. Okay? God's decree is that the cross is for all people without exception is where these guys would go. These guys would say God's decree is for, God, for God's people only, for the elect only, <clears throat> from eternity to past. Mm -hmm. And God's decree is that the cross is applied only to the elect. So, the Calvinist view is that the intent of the cross is only for God's people. God does not intend to save the non-elect. So, different from a hypothetical atonement, this is a definite atonement. This actually secures everything necessary for salvation including the faith that is necessary for saints to exercise. So, Jesus secures everything necessary through the cross, every aspect. 
And so what we're going to be looking at for the last, you know, 20, 30 minutes is going to be how, how do we do this? How do we do this? Uh, this whole debate on the extent of the atonement, how do we come to right theological conclusions that's different from just, I have more proof text than you do? Because that's not the way to do theology. How, how do we come to this particular conclusion? We come to it by looking at biblical theology. We do biblical theology, the Christmas tree. The Christmas tree of theology. Exegesis and biblical theology... That's foundational, and then we move to systematic theology conclusions that we, we apply to this particular issue, okay? So what are definite atonement, particular atonement folks going to argue? What am I going to argue? That the atonement cannot be divorced from Christ's work as our high priest and sacrifice. In other words, the Levitical sacrificial system teaches us the purpose and extent of the atonement. So we looked at the sacrificial system and said, something's dying in the place of this sinner. That's teaching us about the nature of the atonement. That animal's being, being penalized. And there's substitution, placing hand on the head of the animal, something dying in your place, Passover lamb. Um, so it's teaching us on nature, but it also teaches us about extent of the atonement. Okay? Um, so let's, let's think about it as we are tracing Christ's priestly work, um, really from the beginning. So, who was the first priest? Adam, okay? Well, what does it mean to be a priest? Yeah, like, um, yeah, 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 yeah. That, so, like, you're, you're mediating. You, what are you mediating? God's presence. That's right. So you are mediating God's presence to the rest of the world. And Adam was doing that in the garden, right? Uh, Genesis 3, everything's ruined right? But we see, boo, but we see in Genesis 3, like, that we see sacrifice, right? Like, something's got to die in order for Adam and Eve to be covered, okay? But there's not a lot of language and precision there, not yet, because there's progressive revelation, right? God doesn't just drop the book of Hebrews on us at Genesis 3.15. So, when we're moving from Adam forward in terms of priesthood, uh, who do do we see next? Well, Noah, yeah, Noah, uh, Abraham, mm -hmm. what what about in Abraham's time? Like, is there someone else? Melchizedek, right? Uh, If I'm not mistaken... The word priest in Genesis 14 is the first time that priest is used in the Bible to refer to Melchizedek. It is not used of anybody else prior to Melchizedek. So Melchizedek. 
This is going to be important. Author of Hebrews is going to teach us how to read our Bibles. Okay, Melchizedek. What comes after Melchizedek? I mean, obviously, there's we, we want to put up here Noah. Okay, but we're, we're trying to stay at 35,000 feet. Aaron is a part of what? Yeah, Levitical system. Okay, Levitical system that includes priests and sacrifices. So, like, prior to Jesus, Levitical system is from Exodus to John the Baptist. So the overwhelming majority of the Bible, this is the system by which God's presence is mediated to God's people, right? How is it done in the Levitical system? Like, how, does, how is God's presence manifesting itself? And how does that change to the New Covenant? Does, does God's presence dwell every, every Old Testament saint? Okay. Well, how does right? So God's presence comes down upon the tabernacle and the temple. The high priest goes in. Uh, Moses, Aaron, and then uh, Day of Atonement, Leviticus sixteen, and <clears throat> that's where you have you've got to do it this way. You've got to have this kind of sacrifice. The, the priest has to offer a sacrifice for himself first. He's got to cleanse himself. And then one day of the year, he goes into the, the Holy of Holies, right? Like, and the, in the Holy of Holies, he, offers, he puts blood on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant, right? And we see that uh, the, the Holy of Holies is, is like a cube. Like the, the dimensions of the Holy of Holies is a cube. Right? Height. All right? So, Levitical system, pointing forward. What, what happens in the prophets with, with God's presence and exile? Right? You remember where that is? Where does, when does God leave? Something flies. The presence of the Lord flies away. Yeah, Ezekiel. Mm-hmm. Yep. Ezekiel what? It's early on. Ezekiel ten. There you go, Ezekiel 10. Okay, so uh, Ezekiel 10, uh, in which direction does the, uh, does the Spirit, the presence of the Lord, the Spirit of the Lord, glory of the Lord go? It's got, a, it's got like all these wheels, right, so that it can go any direction it wants. In which direction does it go? It goes east. All right, so Chandler pointed south, but I think she meant, she meant east. Right, now that's south. That's, that's, <laughs> you don't know where you are, you should, you should know where you are. All right, so, <clears throat> it goes east. Okay, 
the entry to the tabernacle and the temple, you entered from the east, right? That's going back to the Garden of Eden, right? They were kicked out, booted out, out of the east. The angel sets up a, or the angel is set up as a guard, blocking the eastern gate back into Eden. So entry into the presence of the Lord is through this eastern gate of Eden that is now blocked. But now from this point on, tabernacle and temple, all, all, the, all the entrances are from the east. Okay? The, 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 the furniture, the, uh, the stuff that is supposed to be made for the tabernacle and the temple, it's described like flowers, like trees, like fruit. The tabernacle and the temple are intended to be seen as a new Eden. Okay? Again, what was in Eden? The fullness of God's presence, right? So all the stuff in, in the temple like, was meant to communicate God's presence. God's presence, God's people, God's place. Um, all right, but the Levitical system, before we get too far ahead of ourselves with Ezekiel, um, is there anything significant that happens from, from an epochal or covenantal perspective between the Levitical sacrificial system, and uh, the prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. David, you're not even talking into the microphone. All the ones and ones of people will be, will be furious. David, what's, what's significant, significant about David? He's the king? Right. So, so how, like, if we're thinking about back to Adam, how does David function? Well, David's certainly the king, right? D does, does he work as a prophet? I mean, how much of Scripture does David write? A lot. A lot of the Psalms, right? How, in terms of priest, he wears the ephod, brings the Holy of Holies into the temple, into the city, wants to build a temple for the Lord. The Lord says, no, I'll build you a house. You don't build me a house. Your son will build me a house, right? Bring, ushers worship God's presence into the city of Jerusalem. God's people enjoy rest under David. He's like bringing to himself all these different offices, the threefold offices like that was with Adam, then broken up, is now being brought back together in one guy, David. And yeah. Melchizedek. He was a priest of the Most High, uh, and I think he was the king of Salem, which means peace, like Salem, I think, was Jerusalem back in the day. Well, he blessed Abraham. God's blessing? All right, so what, what, what's significant with David as it relates to the priesthood, if we're thinking about Scripture? Like, progressively revealing more and more about the nature of the atonement, the extent of the atonement, priesthood, sacrifice, all these things. Think about the Psalms. Psalm 2, okay. The son, the, the, the son, kiss the son. The son has the royal scepter, right? But then you said Psalm 110, okay. Psalm 110 is coming after 2 Samuel 7, 
right? Do we remember what's in 2 Samuel 7? The Davidic covenant. What is in the Davidic covenant? God's promise of a son who will rule forever on the throne. And so, yeah, Solomon, 40 years of peace, looks fantastic, miserable failure. Uh, but, but David writes Psalm 110, and what does Psalm 110 say? And I will make your enemies a footstool for your feet, right? Yes. So, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David is saying, the Lord, God, said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Who is going to be sitting on the throne forever? Well, yes, thank you, spoiler. But who, who? The son of David. This is where Jesus comes like, David refers to his son as Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord. How can David's son be his Lord? And Jesus stumps the Pharisees because they're not reading their Bibles well. Right? So Psalm 110. Psalm 110, what is, what is David saying? David is saying, My son will sit on the throne forever. He will be my Lord because my Lord will say to my Lord, my son, sit at my right hand. But he's not just a king. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Scepter language is from Psalm, Psalm 2. Where else is scepter language coming from? Way back in Genesis. The scepter will not depart from Judah. From Judah. And Judah is the one, the tribe that's on the eastern side, sitting in front of the entrance to the temple, the tabernacle. Joseph is not. Jacob's son. Yeah. Jacob's blessing to Judah. So, <clears throat> Psalm 110. But who is he going to be a priest after the order of? So David is pointing back to Melchizedek, all right? And he's going to be the Lord. Uh, the son of David. He's going to be the king. And he's going to be a priest. But he's not going to be a priest like the Levites. He's going to be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And then, and then we get to post-Davidic, exile. God says, I'm leaving. Presence off the temple, flies east just like he booted Adam, and goes elsewhere. And nowhere in the Old Testament does it talk about the presence of the Lord ever returning to the temple. Not even when Ezra rebuilds. Not even when Ezra rebuilds. And Nehemiah rebuilds the city walls of Jerusalem after the exile. 
No, no mention in the Old Testament of the Lord's presence returning to the temple until we open the New Testament. And when does the glory of the Lord return? John 2. Jesus enters the temple. One of the, one of the entrances, yeah. But like before, right before he's crucified, like the night of, Jesus exits out. If I'm not mistaken, Jesus exits out the eastern gate, goes to the Garden of Gethsemane, which is on the mount. Yeah, cleansing the temple. The, the, the Spirit of the Lord has returned to the temple, and what does He do? He cleanses the temple. He is not the Spirit. The Spirit of God is upon Jesus in its fullness. God's presence has re-entered the temple because the Son of God has entered the temple full of the Spirit, completely obedient to the Father. And He's kicking out schmoes who are abusing the temple, turning it into a time for making money. Right? Yes, I'm just saying it doesn't say like verse 24. It doesn't say the Lord has returned. No, but does it? Does it have to, Chandler? It does say that, Chandler. <laughs> it, it, but are you? Are you, Chandler? Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Right. You don't think it, you don't think it, it, so what exactly are you trying to say, Chandler? I hope she's verbally processing. Mm-hmm. Are, are you, are you? Are you not trying to? Mm-hmm. So in Luke chapter 1, Don't be afraid, Mary, for you found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, which means God saves. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel said, answered her, 
the Lord, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Holy Spirit or the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, which is the Spirit, holy, the Son of God. And then, uh, I mean, really, before Jesus like cleanses the temple, it's like him coming in as a as a child, right? When he's presented at the temple. But then he starts his ministry and he comes into the temple. Whoopsh, whoopsh. Right? Okay, so Psalm 110. David is combining Davidic kingship, priesthood, and obviously he's he's acting as a prophet by writing the scripture, right? And then what what does the angel say to Mary? He he will he will sit upon the throne of his father David. It's God God with us. Matthew what Matthew two or in Matthew one, he will save his people from his from their sins. Um. <clears throat> Yes, you will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. What, what is the angel doing? The angel is combining all of these things that David has already combined. Obviously, David's inspired by the Spirit to, to say these things, right? And so the angel is affirming these things. The king, who is going to be the priest, will come, and he will be a king who will provide forgiveness of sins, which is a priestly act. And he will sit on the throne forever, the throne of his father David, which is a kingly act. And David is, is doing that for us in Psalm 110, a thousand years before Jesus comes. Okay? And so when Mary's hearing these promises, if Mary's believing the scriptures, Mary's going to be saying, well, yeah, of course it would happen this way. Of course it would be a son of David who will be a king and the priest who will save his people from their sins, which is why Mary's like, I'm here. I, I'm, I'm happy to serve. Yeah, Joseph, yeah, absolutely. Same thing. All right, so if we're thinking about topology, we're thinking about, <clears throat> we've already been tracing these things very, very broadly, right? Uh, author of Hebrews does this and applies it to the atonement. Hebrews 5 to 10 essentially. And uh, what, what, does he, what does he look at? He looks at the Levitical sacrificial system when he's talking about the atonement. And, and what does he say about the priesthood? He's just teaching us. What, what, are the, what do the high priests have to do? All right, so he's saying we have a great high priest, namely Jesus, right? So let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. That's a command. Draw, with, draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time and need, not because we're different than Israel, but because we have a much greater priest than Israel ever did, namely Jesus Christ. And so now he's going into like, okay, how should we understand Jesus' high priestly work? For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. 
He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. Okay, so what is, what is the author of Hebrews looking at in this particular section? What, what part of redemptive history? He's looking at the Levitical system. And he's saying, okay, we've got to understand Jesus' high priestly work in light of what has come before. Okay, because the Levitical system wasn't just simply given in order that Israel might enjoy God's presence. The primary function of the Levitical sacrificial system was to point forward to Jesus and find its fulfillment in Him so that we might understand what Jesus has done. Okay? So, the Levitical system informs how we should understand the priesthood. So, the high priest is appointed by God. He doesn't choose himself. He's appointed from a particular tribe by the Lord Himself. Now, our first thought if we're thinking carefully, is what is the problem? What is the problem with Jesus' priesthood? Before my wife says it, just give them a chance. Give them a chance. What's the problem? What's, what's the problem with Jesus' priesthood? The perceived problem. Jesus is not a Levite. So how can he be a priest? So who was the son with a scepter promised to? Judah, right? And yes, David, Sub subsequently, way down the line. Judah right? Mm -hmm. Judah is the son of who? Israel. Right. Jacob and Israel slash Israel. But Abraham, right? Abraham's the patriarch. Like he's the greatest. Israel comes from him and all the tribes. Author of Hebrews says, who blessed who in Genesis 14? Melchizedek blessed Abraham. Who blesses who in a, in, a, in a relationship? The greater blesses the lesser, or the lesser blesses the greater? The greater blesses the lesser. Melchizedek blesses Abraham. So, everyone who comes from Abraham is... Less than Melchizedek, right? Right? Including, the altar of Hebrews says, Levi. Levi and all the priests. Right? So, Levi, that priesthood is a lesser priesthood than the priesthood of the, of the man who blessed Abraham, who is Levi's dad. I mean, ultimately, Levi's great-granddad. Yeah. He, like, blessed Abraham, and Levi was in the loins of Abraham. I mean, so, 
So David in Psalm 110 is already telling us as early as Psalm 110, maybe there's an earlier indication, but Psalm 110 is the earliest indication that there is a new covenant coming. Why, why would I say that? Yes, because what is the foundation for the law and people relating to God with the law? The priesthood. The, pe- the, people, the people can't relate to God by covenant unless they have a priesthood that is going to mediate on their behalf according to the covenant. And so the author of Hebrews is saying, when David says my, that his son, who is also his Lord, who is also the eternal king, will be seated at the right hand of the Father. He will be a priest, not after the order of Levi, but after the order of Melchizedek. And Melchizedek, the author of Hebrews is saying, listen, let's just look at the text. Genesis 14. Does Melchizedek have a start? Does he have an end? So in a way, serving as a type... He's showing that Melchizedek's priesthood that David talks about in Psalm 110, that's that's an eternal priesthood. No beginning, no end priesthood. Who's greater, Abraham or Melchizedek? Melchizedek. So the priest, the son, who is the king, who is the priest, will be greater than Abraham, even though he is Abraham's son. He'll be greater than David, even though he is David's son. And that son will have no beginning and no end. Neither will his priesthood. And it'll be through this priesthood that God's, God will put his enemies as a footstool under his feet. Yes, he his his earthly priesthood had a beginning, obviously. Yes. I mean, he's God. He is he is he is the divine Son, no beginning, no end, and therefore his priesthood reflects that. Which is why, like Revelation, can say, the Lamb who's slain before the foundations of the world. Right? It's like proleptic. It, it, looking forward hasn't happened yet, but we're talking about it as if it's... Yeah. So, Psalm 110, pointing back to Melchizedek. Melchizedek, greater than Abraham, greater than Levi. This Melchizedekian priest will also be the king, the son of David. And so what, what, is, what is the author of Hebrews saying? When there's a change in the priesthood, the priesthood is the foundation of the covenant. You can't relate to God by covenant unless you have some, something to cover sin. Because you can't relate to God with sin. So David, as early as like 900 and something B.C., is saying there's a new covenant coming. This is hundreds of years before Jeremiah 31. 
This is the, this, I, I think this is the, the first real explicit textual evidence for a new covenant coming that is then given greater clarity in Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36. The prophets are picking up on earlier stuff, and they're giving it greater clarity, right? All right, so when we are thinking about uh, these things, Jesus is not a Levite. He's a tribe of Judah. That's a good thing because we don't need a Levite priest who offers sacrifices for his own sins first and then offers sacrifices on behalf of the people. We need a priest better than Levite. We need a priest after the order of Melchizedek, the kind of priest who would bless the father of, of, of the faith. We need a priest who has no beginning and no end. Now, is that to say that Melchizedek in Genesis 14 is the pre-incarnate Jesus? No. Is that to say that Melchizedek truly had no beginning and no end? No. It is typological. He's just looking at the text, and he's saying, okay, Genesis 14, Psalm 110 picks it back up, priesthood after this order. I can see how these things are pointing forward to the Son. He has no beginning and no end. He's, he's greater than Abraham, and he's going to save Abraham's people. He is, he is the son of Abraham, the son of David, and yet he's greater than Abraham, greater than David. He's the son of David, and yet he's David's Lord. He's the king who's going to rule forever, and he's going to be a king forever because he will have dealt with sin, which is why in Hebrews 1 it says, after making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the Father. Having inherited a name greater than that of the name of angels, what did God promise Abraham? I'll make your name great. Kings will come from you. Through your offspring, the nations will be blessed. And so all these themes are coming together in the priesthood and the sacrificial system and all this kind of stuff. And the author of Hebrews is saying, all this stuff is here for us to understand. So like when Jesus says, oh, you, Luke 24, you foolish Guys, slow of heart to believe all that the, the, the Scriptures have said. There really is a basis for that rebuke. It's not Jesus being mean. It's you haven't believed the Scriptures. And so, we have a Jesus, we have a high priest who is sinless. He didn't offer sacrifice for his own sins. He offered himself for our sins. He's a priest who... Has no beginning, no end. Death could not keep him. He's greater than Abraham. He is a new priesthood, which means it's a new covenant. A better covenant than that of the old. He doesn't offer the blood of animals, bulls, goats, because bulls and goats, they did it for 1,500 years, and it couldn't take away sins. Why? Because they had to keep offering stuff. If it really took away sin, all you had to do was offer it one time. One day of atonement, and that's it. But they had to do it year after year, day after day. Thousands and thousands of animals every year dying, blood being spilt everywhere. Can you imagine what the temple looked like? Blood everywhere. And like that's, that's like that's showing us the heinousness of our sin. Right? Um, <clears throat> and so Jesus, and then, you know, picking up, John picks up, Temple language applying in Revelation 21, and it, God's people 
are described like a cube. The temple in Revelation. It's the Holy of Holies. We're the Holy of Holies. Jesus is the Holy of Holies. All these things are coming together. Okay, so how do we apply this? Let's kind of land this plane. How do we apply this in light of uh, the extent of the atonement? Um, so, oh my goodness, these are terrible. In terms of the extent of the atonement, sufficiency of the atonement, all this kind of stuff, nature of the atonement, um, Jesus offered himself, right? Uh, one time. Right? <clears throat> so, what, 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 is that, what does that mean? It's substitutionary. Substitutionary. Uh, Jesus died. His blood cleanses us. By His one sacrifice, His people have been perfected for all time. Hebrews 7. Alright, so what, what does that entail? It's penal. Uh, no beginning, no end. To his priesthood. Now when the author of Hebrews says that he offers himself one time, it's totally, totally sufficient. Right? That's speaking to sufficiency of the atonement. That both, both camps, universal and definite, both say absolutely amen. Okay, so then the question becomes, with regard to intention, if the old covenant sacrificial system is the context for his priestly work, who does he represent? So if the Levitical sacrificial system, the author of Hebrews is saying like, this is the paradigm that God has given us to understand Jesus' work, but we just need to understand that Jesus is better than the Levitical system because his priesthood is after the order of Melchizedek, so it's better than the Levites, but it's in that same uh, stream, so we need to understand like he doesn't appoint himself, appointed by God. He offers sacrifices for the people, yada, yada, yada. Who did, who did the high priest represent? The people of Israel. Where in the Old Testament do you see, yeah, do, where do you see the high priest of Israel offer sacrifices for the Assyrians? Or the Babylonians? The Canaanites? 
the Egyptians. Right? You see in the prophets God's promise that He will save the nations, but the nations are going to be saved through this future David, who is also a priest. Right? But the Levitical sacrificial system, what was the problem with it? Was it a problem that it represented God's people? That wasn't the problem. What was the problem? Yeah, he was a sinner. He kept dying. It was insufficient. It was insufficient. It was simply pointing forward. Yes, a shadow. A dim shadow of what's, what's to come. Right? So, but if, if the high priesthood of the Levitical system is the, is the context for us understanding the priesthood of Jesus then why would we then understand Jesus to represent people outside of his covenant community? If the old covenant priest, Levitical high priest, represented Israel, but the problem was that not all Israel was saved by those sacrifices, it was a mixed community of believers and unbelievers, does Jesus's priesthood imitate that in terms of sufficiency or does it imitate it in terms of who he represents it's just that his representation and his sacrifice is just a lot better in fact perfect right the second one so like we shouldn't understand jesus's high priesthood to be radically different than the levitical one we shouldn't somehow see that jesus represents new covenant people plus the rest of the world who are never going to be a part of his new covenant community. He's representing the new covenant community, which is Jew and Gentile. The true sons of Abraham. What's the distinction, though? As Baptists, we're, we're, we're saying Jesus' priesthood is the grounds for us believing that the new covenant community is fully regenerate. Why? Because his priesthood and his sacrifice is better than some old Levite high priest who had to offer sacrifices for himself first because of his own sin, and then he had to keep doing it every year, and then he died. And then his animal sacrifices kept going on and on and on every year, every year, day after day, month after month, year after year, never taking away sin. Jesus is a priest forever. He's not sinful. He's sinless. He offers himself. His sacrifice is perfect. And it perfects his people. Chandler, you seem to be processing through stuff. You have your face, the face that you make. They're arguing that the nature of the new covenant community is not much different than the old covenant community. That's what I would argue. Because they, they, they are saying they're trying to redefine and make a distinction between church, new covenant community, and elect. In their, in their 
framework, yes. Right, so, <clears throat> like for example, I mean, just example, Travis Willman, dear brother who's a member of our church, and who's gotten married and moved on. Um, he was a Presbyterian when he was coming to Holy City. He was just coming here because we were open and Christ community, or Christ church, Presbyterian was not. That's okay, totally fine. Um, and he was at, we sat down for lunch, and, you know, Julie Newell had been trying to convince him of Baptist stuff forever. And uh, 1689 and what have you. Great, fine. Um, and so we sat down and he's like, yeah, I'm not convinced. Um, but I want to keep coming. Is that okay? And then I'll, I'll, I'll go to Christ Church on Sunday evenings for the time being. Yeah, no problem. Just answer me this, though. Do you mind if I ask you a question about since you're a committed Presbyterian? Sure. Is Christ's priesthood better than the Levitical priesthood? Yes. Do you think that he loses any of his people? No. Then why do you believe that the New Covenant community is believers in their children and those children fall away? Some of those children fall away. I'll think about that. In what way does it, does it is Jesus' priesthood better if the nature of, of his people is no different than Israel? And what ultimately Presbyterians will argue is that he just has a higher percentage of salvation, of saving. He's better than the Levites in that he saves more of his new covenant people, but some of them do get lost. And that's how they interpret the apostasy passages in the book of Hebrews, which is where we, we disagree and we say, you're not reading those warnings rightly. I mean, that's how I understand definite. Not in his representation, no. I don't say that he can argue, or I don't argue that he can lose people. So Steve Wellham wrote a chapter for the book, um, From Heaven He Came in Solder, and he essentially argued this. And David Gibson and Jonathan Gibson are the editors of that book, and they're both Presbyterian. And they read his chapter, and they sent him an email back and said, we need you to put a footnote in towards the end of your chapter because your entire chapter has destroyed Presbyterian views of the atonement. And so he had to put in a, a footnote at the end of the chapter and said, you know, Presbyterians put it together this way. I, I don't think that works based on what I've argued, which is why I'm Baptist. Essentially, was what the footnote said, um, and so his here it's priesthood is uh, priesthood tied to covenant community. So I don't think that Jesus's priesthood is better in that he represents more people outside the covenant community, unlike the Levites, who only represented Israel. Jesus also represents Israel and Assyria and Babylon. Now, I don't think that that's what the author of Hebrews is arguing. Jesus' priesthood is better because he doesn't lose any of his people in the covenant community. His, his mediation, his intercession, his sacrifice, perfect. It accomplishes everything that this system 
pointed forward to but could not accomplish because of the weakness of the law. And that was intentional because the law was meant to point to Jesus. So for understanding priesthood and sacrifice, as the author of Hebrews says, I, I would argue that from a biblical theological perspective, Jesus' priesthood demands definite, particular, or limited atonement. Limited specifically to his covenant people. And so <clears throat> then we have to work through the issues of like, well, what about what about what about first John? John three sixteen. What about what about first John two? He is a propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. How do you understand that? Well, who's writing that letter? John. Is there another gospel author who more strongly emphasizes the priestly work of Jesus more than John? I, I, I mean, John, John's high, high priestly prayer, John 17. Revelation, the book of Revelation. I mean, Paul is writing New Testament letters. What was Paul raised in? Levitical sacrificial system. What was John raised in? They're writing these letters in a particular context. All that they're arguing is that Jesus is better. So they're not arguing something radically different than this. They're just saying, this has been perfected by him. And so when we, have to, when we read John, we have to understand, okay, this is the same John who's so strongly emphasizes priestly work of Jesus in his gospel and all of his letters and the book of Revelation. So when he says he is the propitiation for our sins and not for, and not for our sins, or not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world, John's writing that with this covenantal context in mind. And so now we have to just understand what, what does... What does John mean? Because I don't think that John is meaning that Jesus' priestly sacrificial work is now somehow less effective than this. I think he's actually arguing the opposite. It's more effective. And so like world in Scripture, like it can be translated lots of different ways. Right? Like world is, can refer to the fallen order. All that which is opposed to that's John 3.16. And that's to emphasize God's love over and against how crappy the world is, right? But the world is also refer, used to refer to like both Jew and Gentile, right? But then it's also referred to like all kinds of people, not just Jews, not just Gentiles, slave, free, male and female, all kinds of people, all tribes of people. And then finally, like, <clears throat> other than biblical theological, we think about it from a Trinitarian perspective. And we'll close with this. If we're thinking about Trinitarian relations, because Chandler loves to think about the personal relations between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, how they're relating to one another, unbegotten, begotten, eternally generated, Eternal procession, inspiration. Um, <clears throat> if we're thinking about inseparable operations, do Father, Son, Holy Spirit work inseparably 
perfectly. Okay, so let's think about it in terms of the atonement. In universal atonement, who has been, who has been elected? Unto salvation. All those that God saw through four new, four new future faith, right? Who did the Son offer atonement for? Everybody. Is that inseparable operations? So there's, was there a miscommunication between the Father and the Son? Or maybe, maybe, maybe it's that the, that the Spirit didn't apply it to everyone that the Son offered it for. Also, no. If we're going to affirm that Father, Son, and Father, Son, Holy Spirit work inseparably, perfect unity in all actions, including redemption and atonement, those the Father have elected, the Son accomplished the atonement, for those people, and the Spirit perfectly applies it. So the atonement has got to be like a thousand batting average, right? Because anything less than a thousand is imperfect, which means they've separated in their operations. They've miscommunicated. The Spirit has not fully applied, or the Son died for the wrong people, or... The Father elected people that, <clears throat> that the Spirit didn't rightly apply it to, or whatever. But for us, it's like, no, Jesus is the, high, the Son is the high priest of the new covenant community. He offered himself on behalf of his covenant people. His covenant people are those whom the Father elected from eternity past, his new covenant people. And he's perfect in his mediation, representation, sacrifice, when he said, it is finished, it was definite. It wasn't, it is possible, it, but it is finished. And then the Spirit perfectly applies the work of the Son to those whom the Father has elected. And they work inseparably in the, in the atonement, which necessitates understanding the atonement as a, as a definite particular, limited in its extent, which also, shockingly, coincides with the biblical theological argument that no, Jesus only intercedes for his covenant people. That's, he's in the order of the Levitical system. He's just better. He's after the order of Melchizedek. Does that make sense? This is a secondary issue. Um, not one that we need to look at Armenians and say you're not believers. Uh, but I do think it's a sufficient enough issue that it probably is best for you to go to another local church because if... If we know that, Lord, that the Lord has elected His people, that Jesus has accomplished that salvation, and that the Spirit will apply with perfect effect, effectiveness that perfectly effectual work of the Son, do we have to manipulate? Do we have to twist arms? Do we have to come up with like super clever programs? Do we have to? Do I have to like study the latest psychological trends like Charles Finney? And, and, and like uh, commit myself to revivalistic 
methodologies. No, I can preach the gospel, and I can pray, and I can share the gospel, and I can call people to repentance and faith, and I can do it trusting, knowing that God's people will always respond. It may take a hundred times, but God's people will respond. They'll always respond. Why? Because Jesus, his, his, his work is effectual. It produces the intended results. And so I don't have to twist arms. And like limited atonement, when I go out definite atonement and I'm evangelizing, like I, ha- I can have great confidence, not because I know whether or not this person is going to be a believer or not, but because God knows and God will bring it about. And his ordained means of doing that is through his people proclaiming the gospel. And so we can just simply obey and trust the authority and power of his word to do what he has ordained and decreed. And so, like, we don't have to have the greatest showman during Sunday morning. We don't have to have all kinds of nutso, crazy things. We can pray, preach, sing, share the gospel, love one another, show hospitality, and that's how the world's changed for Jesus. So, our views of the atonement, our views of the extended atonement really do work themselves out in the, w- in the way that the local church actually lives together. And then also, as a local church, especially when we're counseling and we're like exhorting believers to, to repent of sin, like we can trust that like God's people are going to respond. It might be messy, it might involve church discipline, but God's people will be brought back. None who belong to Him will be lost. Because he is a perfect shepherd who runs after the one, leaves the 99 behind. And so, like, we can do that, practicing meaningful membership in church discipline. We don't know, we don't have the eyes of the Lord, but we just need to practice what he has, what he has commanded and do it faithfully. And that's the means by which people are saved and kept. All because of his atoning work. Any questions? Thanks for coming to the class. It's been fun. Yeah, it's been fun. Uh, Well, let me pray.